Episode 5, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, White House Folkies. During her husband's first term, Eleanor Roosevelt was in correspondence with Virginia's folklorist and music scholar John Powell, accepting his invitation to attend the third White Top Folk Festival in the summer of 1933. The presence of the First Lady gave proletarian America's songs and ballads respectability, reinforced on the 21st of February 1934 when she broadcast nationwide from the White House to launch Powell's NBC series of Southern Folk Music Programmes. The same year saw St Louis host the first National Folk Festival, an annual gathering of artists and field workers, which today takes place under the auspices of the National Council for the Traditional Arts. Encouraged by FDR, we have the best of man's past upon which to draw, brought to us by our native folk and the folk from all parts of the world. In binding these elements into a national fabric of beauty and strength, let us see to it that the fineness of each shows in the completed handwork. The festival moved to Washington in 1938. Appointed as an honorary chair, Eleanor Roosevelt negotiated with the Daughters of the American Revolution to lease Constitution Hall, the festival's principal venue, until its wartime move to New York. She regularly attended concerts and worked with Paul Green, the NFF's president, to ensure an inclusive agenda. Every race and ethnicity was represented, with Native Americans enjoying pride of place. Both the First Lady and the President encouraged the New Deal's promotion of indigenous popular music. Various bodies sprung up under the umbrella of the Works Progress Administration, the federal government's flagship initiative. In My Day, the column syndicated six days a week to 90 newspapers across the nation. Eleanor Roosevelt regularly urged the American people to rediscover their history through traditional music. Her readers learned how the presidential couple shared radiogram nights at Hyde Park or inside the White House. These brief moments of domestic intimacy saw the First Lady and her husband listening to the latest releases from family friend Josh White, revered composer Earl Robinson, concert favourite Burl Ives and the extraordinary Paul Robeson. Throughout the post-war years, Eleanor Roosevelt would stoutly defend Robeson's right to sing and speak without fear of violent protest, while growing ever more critical of his praise for Stalin's Russia. By 1949, her patience was exhausted, although she did berate the racist and violent demonstrators who sought to silence Robeson's September concert in Peekskill, an outer suburb of New York City, where, as the riot unfolded, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger could be found among those literally fighting for free speech. Henceforth, the once-much-loved Robeson was persona non grata in Mrs Roosevelt's My Day column. A decade earlier, Eleanor had used her journalism to promote federal-funded music programmes, and it was through the WPA that she became directly acquainted with both the Lomax and the Seeger families, twin pillars of the East Coast folk revival. In 1935, the musicologist Charles Seeger, the father of Pete, as well as Mike and Peggy, moved from New York to Washington. Seeger was a patrician figure rooted in old money and Ivy League fraternity. Yet his years as a music professor 
at Berkeley before and during the First World War had seen him radicalised to the point that he left his job and spent much of the twenties on a musical mission to enlighten poor southerners. Pacifist by inclination, he displayed a condescending, if no doubt sincere, concern for the well-being of his less privileged compatriots. A naive capacity to idealise the working class translated itself into a fascination with folk music as the purest manifestation of American popular culture. The classics made way for people's music after Seeger met and married his second wife, the composer Ruth Porter Crawford. Seeger had joined the likes of Aaron Copeland and Earl Robinson in a composer's collective, the members of which wrote well-intentioned but instantly forgettable calls to action in the style of Weimar émigré and Brecht collaborator Hans Eisler. These were the sort of songs which Robinson wrote and arranged for various communist cultural initiatives, notably the People's Chorus of the International Workers' Order, a nationwide organisation providing cheap loans and life insurance. Up in the northwest, fellow travellers and covert party members avoided these well-intentioned hymns of proletarian solidarity. Seattle Democrats' fundraising concerts relied on genuine folk songs and, in a classic case of invented tradition, their organisers voted to call them Hootenannies. This obscure Appalachian word for a party reached New York in autumn 1941, courtesy of Seeger and Guthrie, and was soon the default description of every Soho and Greenwich Village jam session or general get-together. In due course, Hans Eisler would inspire both Woody Guthrie and Billy Bragg, but his music was best suited to Berlin, not Bakersfield or Brooklyn. Thankfully, Ruth Crawford and her collaborator, the veteran poet Carl Sandberg, opened Seeger's eyes to the riches and radicalising potential of the American folk tradition. In 1927, Sandberg had published a pioneering collection, The American Songbag. On stage, he was 20 years ahead of his time, combining folk song with performance poetry. Nine years later, Sandberg's book-length poem, The People, Yes, was hugely influential within liberal and leftist circles through its inclusive definition of what constitutes the people. Charles Seeger admired Sandberg greatly, while Pete Seeger enthusiastically adopted the American songbag and embraced its editor's populist projection of national identity. Charles Seeger's lingering loyalty to the composer's collective died after the tough-talking balladeer Aunt Molly Jackson found herself in New York entertaining and enlightening East Coast leftists with her hard-hitting songs of the Kentucky Coalfield. As one might expect of an Appalachian coal miner's wife, she told Seeger and his comrades exactly what they could do with their experimental music. Recalling this fiery encounter, Seeger acknowledged, We were all on the wrong track. It was professionals trying to write music for the people and not in the people's idiom. By the mid-30s, a re-educated Charles Seeger felt suitably qualified to take a job with the Music Unit, a very minor body within the vast relief operation which operated under the auspices of the Resettlement Administration, later renamed the Farm Security Administration. Film and photography flourished within a federal agency keen to record its success in fighting poverty. 
the music achieved little other than ethnographer Sidney Robertson Cowell's field recordings in the Ozarks and the Appalachians. Cowell was Seeger's assistant and, while she was out in the wild preserving timeless tunes on shellac, he was busy cultivating Eleanor Roosevelt's affection for homegrown American music. Charles Seeger's reward was appointment in 1937 as assistant director of the Federal Music Project. From 1939, the WPA Music Programme. The project had energetically promoted music at every level, from high school tuition to concert stage performance, but the emphasis was very much upon the European classical tradition. Seeger sought to widen the scope of the FMP, encouraging those directors eager to embrace music unique to their home state. The second Mrs Seeger, Ruth Crawford, was similarly evangelical after she joined the project. With Congress eager to cut the agency's budget, there was keen debate inside and outside the project over what its focus should now be. One sign of shifting priorities was the resignation in May 1939 of the director, Nikolai Sokolov. Creator and conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra prior to taking on the FMP, Sokolov resented a repositioning of his original programme at the expense of classical music. Unsurprisingly, Charles Seeger was invited to organise the White House concert for King George VI and Queen Elizabeth on the 8th of June 1939. Marian Anderson's arias were juxtaposed with a five-minute medley of mountain music by the Appalachian string band the Coon Creek Girls, later replicated for a concert recording and available today on YouTube. No evidence exists to suggest the royal couple shared the Roosevelt's enthusiasm for rocket speed Kentucky bluegrass. Nor was this the only folk music on the show. Did the King and Queen politely applaud Library of Congress archivist Alan Lomax's worthy efforts to reinvent himself as a performer? And did FDR's next day note of appreciation advise that he stick to his day job? Keen to orchestrate every aspect of the state occasion, Roosevelt had personally approved the evening's entertainment. Despite the oppressive heat and discomfort, he clearly enjoyed himself, discarding the State Department's much reworked speech to propose a more heartfelt toast to the great gentleman and his gallant and gracious lady. The Coon Creek Girl's Southern Charm had surely worked its magic. By the time of the royal visit, three years of civil war in Spain was at an end. Back in December 1936, when the Duke of York, to his deep dismay, had found himself made head of the British Empire, the fight for Madrid was into its fifth month, with the nationalist insurgents thwarted in their initial attempt to capture the capital. Open-minded and instinctively progressive, Eleanor Roosevelt was already seen by American war correspondents in Spain as sympathetic to the Republican cause and therefore willing to persuade her husband that the administration lift its arms embargo. The journalist Martha Gellhorn was both a lobbyist and a friend, sending the First Lady detailed accounts of appalling conditions in Madrid and Barcelona. Eleanor Roosevelt failed to convince FDR that the United States should abandon its non-interventionist position, primarily because the Democratic Party feared losing the Catholic vote. 
Her only solace was in due course to enjoy music inspired by the bravery of the international brigades. Mrs Roosevelt was said to take solace from Ernst Busch's Six Songs for Democracy, an album released by Keynote Recordings in 1940, a year after Madrid surrendered to Franco's forces. Exiled from Nazi Germany, Bush was a communist composer who, when not serving on the front line with the Thalmann Battalion, had written songs to boost civilian morale. Bush adapted for his comrades Alex McDade's famous rewrite of the Red River Valley, Jarama Valley, but he played down the English song's emphasis on sacrifice and loss. The combat experience of veteran street fighters from Berlin was very different from the British and American baptism of fire at Jarama in February 1937. Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie tailored their version to the memory of the Lincoln Battalion's virgin soldiers, nearly half of whom were killed the first time the American volunteers went into battle. Together and separately, the two men played benefits for Spanish exiles, with Eleanor Roosevelt courting controversy within Washington by adding her support for Republican refugees entering the United States via Mexico. Closer to home, the First Lady was deeply conscious of Indigenous American music's capacity to survive, and to renew itself in the face of economic adversity and social deprivation. Migration and the wireless gave rural popular music, black and white, an added urban dimension, not least in the extent to which working songs of the Depression embraced social commentary and a radical political agenda. These were the fledgling years of Chicago blues, with renewed migration north once the economy saw genuine signs of recovery. Blues and gospel inspired quintessentially modern musicians, notably George Gershwin, whose so-called folk opera, Porgy and Bess, was first staged in September 1936. A parallel for folk and country music were the settings of Ruth Crawford Seeger, Aaron Copeland and even Elliot Carter, unmistakably American composers seeking a synergy of the nation's classical and folk traditions. At the same time, African-American music gained a wider audience and a more progressive pattern through the growing appeal of Paul Robeson. Black music became increasingly mainstream, recognised by white listeners as underpinning and complementing New Orleans and big band jazz. Eleanor Roosevelt's admiration of Marian Anderson and her qualified respect for Paul Robeson reflected the political and aesthetic sensibility of someone sensitive to profound changes in African-American popular culture. She applauded the National Folk Festival's desegregated concerts and the white founders' enthusiastic embrace of country blues and Memphis or New Orleans jazz. When the Daughters of the American Revolution vetoed a Marian Anderson's performance at Constitution Hall, they had no idea that W.C. Handy had played there a year earlier. In 1938, Mrs. Roosevelt had been insistent that if the National Folk Festival moved to Washington, there could be no colour bar on stage. Left-leaning musicologists like Charles Seeger and the youthful Alan Lomax actively promoted the politicisation of American folk in all its myriad forms. Ace banjo player turned academic Dick Wiseman felt either man deserved the title Cultural Commissar of American Folk Music. 
Their endeavours were endorsed by the American Communist Party, which after 1933 mistakenly perceived people's music as a populist tool for promoting the popular front. As in Europe, the party followed Moscow's edict to abandon its isolated vanguard role and to propagandise for a broad progressive alliance committed to countering fascist aggression, both open and covert. Singers such as Woody Guthrie gave this alliance an authentic proletarian voice. Unlike the well-educated, well-provided-for, but nevertheless well-meaning liberals who saw folk music as an agent of change and grabbed a guitar, or in Pete Seeger's case, a five-string banjo. UCLA sociologist William G. Roy memorably labelled successive generations of Lomaxes and Seegers as movement entrepreneurs and activists. Alan Lomax may have entertained a king and a queen inside the White House, but his forte was finding artists, not trying to be one. A polymath, a philosopher, a performer, a record producer, a programme maker, and above all an avid field collector, this most unlikely of Texans was the Library of Congress's folk song archivist for five years from 1937. Lomax's qualifications for the job rested on interviews and performances previously lodged with the library, his contagious enthusiasm and his precocity. By the age of 24, he'd already edited two encyclopedic volumes of white and Negro songs and ballads. His appointment in Washington, held until Congress killed off funding after Pearl Harbor, left Lomax plenty of time to travel the back roads of the nation, socialise and organise with fellow travelling intellectuals in New York, fulfil his educational remit courtesy of CBS Radio and the RCA record label, and introduced the likes of Guthrie and Leadbelly to an audience of white liberals and leftists the length of the eastern seaboard. Inside the Library of Congress, Alan Lomax worked closely with a celebrated and controversial man of letters, the modernist writer and New Deal defender Archibald MacLeish. The enduring nature of both men's commitment to the people's music became clear as late as 1968, when a bemused Bob Dylan learned that the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet was an admirer eager to meet him. A lengthy passage in Chronicles is dedicated to the author's meeting with MacLeish at his Massachusetts home, the sexagenarian's words of wisdom amply compensating for time wasted on a foredoomed collaborative project. A joint Broadway production mapped out while at the same time writing and recording John Wesley Harding and bringing the sessions at Big Pink to a satisfactory conclusion. Like John Hammond, Alan Lomax's early achievements were impressive and like John Hammond, his finest moments were still to come. Starting in the summers of 1941 and 1942 with field trips to Stovall Plantation outside Clarksdale, Mississippi, and the first recordings of McKinley Morganfield. A year later, Muddy Waters was on stage in Chicago, warming up the audience for Big Bill Brunzi. Alan Lomax's lifelong passion for folk music and the blues owed much to his father, the Austin autodidact and author John Lomax. The older Lomax's list of credentials included college administrator, amateur anthropologist and exhaustive anthologist. Lomax collected cowboy songs, 
Unfortunately, he wasn't averse to sanitising them, or indeed adding a verse or two when deemed appropriate. Lomax Jr. was more of a purist when it came to song collecting, and thus a reverse role model when the Library of Congress gave its approval to John's most ambitious expedition. The Depression having ended his brief incursion into banking, Lomax made it his mission to establish the fledgling Archive of American Folk Song as a vital element within the Library of Congress. He and Allen set out in the summer of 1933 to record African-American work songs. Father and son bonded on an exhausting tour of southern prisons, famously discovering Huddy Ledbetter and his 12-string guitar at Angola State Prison Farm in Louisiana. It was John Lomax who secured Ledbelly a pardon, took him to New York and put him on stage in convict clothes. The likes of Charles Seeger applauded when the well-dressed Leadbelly told the white honky what he could do with his prison stripes and his condescending paternalism. Nevertheless, Seeger saw John Lomax and his son as natural allies when it came to lodging folk music within the national psyche. Crisscrossing the deep south, hauling a heavy recording machine from one hellhole to the next, John and Alan Lomax were united in a mission of discovery. Yet Mary Beth Hamilton's In Search of the Blues suggests a working and personal relationship repeatedly tested by clashing egos and conflicting politics. According to fellow folklorist John Henry Falk, who shared the younger Lomax's radical agenda, Alan's father hated old Roosevelt, hated the whole damn New Deal. He was very conservative in his politics. Yet ironically, it was John Lomax who'd fired the Roosevelt family's enthusiasm for folk music. Before the First World War, he persuaded Teddy Roosevelt to write a characteristically idiosyncratic introduction to cowboy songs and other frontier ballads a unique collection of Wild West music-making. A further irony was that he loved listening to Woody Guthrie. Having said that, John Lomax hated everything Guthrie represented. Rootlessness, mischief-making and a rarely qualified disrespect for authority. All these character traits were what made Woody so attractive to Alan, the junior Lomax.